I don't, I don't know whether getting up and being told to sit down is worse or sitting down and being told it's your turn is worse, so I went with the former. I hope you'll take that to mean that I'm just eager to preach and put the best spin on it. <laughs> I am really uh, looking forward to being with you this week and uh, appreciate the invitation very much. Um, I always say when I'm in a gospel meeting, I appreciate when a group says, these are the things we'd like to talk about. Uh, I know some of the other preachers here, you go somewhere and they say, just preach on whatever. Well, that's, that's a pretty broad category. And that leaves you wondering what, what is the best to preach on. However, uh, this particular group uh, gave me multiple suggestions and I might have wished they'd have said, preach on whatever you want to when that was over. This morning and really uh, throughout the day today, we're going to talk about some of the specific uh, questions that were submitted, posed to me, and uh, um, suggested that we talk about. I've switched the order a little bit. We're going to talk this morning about the covering, and uh, that's because this is the Bible class setting. I'm going to leave that open for some questions along the way, Uh, and I just felt like that lended itself more towards that than the topic we'll discuss in the next hour um, where I don't want anybody interrupting me. No, I I don't mean that. I'm I'm happy to take questions on anything I say, but but I particularly wanted to leave that open for this. Um, I can't say that the covering is a subject I go around preaching about in gospel meetings. Frankly, it's not a subject I preach much at home. Uh, And we'll talk about the reasons for that here in just a moment. In fact, as we go through this morning in the Bible class period, we're going to spend a lot less time talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and a lot more time talking about how we should talk about chapters like 1 Corinthians chapter 11, particularly those first 16 verses. Because I think a lot of times what happens, and one of the reasons I don't spend a lot of time talking about it, is that I think what, what happens is we come with particular attitudes that sort of shut down the opportunity to think clearly about topics like that. People come with a lot of emotion to the table, and because we know people don't agree with us, and it's clear, people don't. we got some people here wearing coverings. We've got some people here not wearing coverings. And we got convictions about that on both sides. And we feel like coming in, somebody's going to have to tell somebody they're going to hell. Somebody's going to have to tell somebody they're wrong. And when we come in with that, well, of course, emotions are going to be high. Well, we know that. And so how do we approach a subject like that? Well, I think that we can find some patterns. I think we can find at least some principles from the New Testament about when people disagreed, how they handled that, how they approached those kinds of subjects uh, that can help us to uh, have the same kind of hearts, the same kind of attitudes as we approach subjects like that. We are not a people who embrace the phrase unity and diversity. And yet, we have a lot of diversity. And I hope we have a lot of unity. And I don't know, I don't mean that we should embrace that like the world means it. What they mean is that no matter what our differences and no matter how far they go, we should just throw all of our differences to the side and just pretend like we're on the same page. That's not what I mean at all. But I do think that there are principles in the New Testament that do recognize some level of diversity and then maintaining certainly a great level uh, of, of unity. So what are some of those principles? Well, I want to begin with the first principle that I think we need to keep in mind, is that, and that is to be 
to be honest about the level of confidence that we have and even can have in any particular conversation we're having about the scriptures. If you'll turn with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. One of my pet peeves when it comes to talking about the covering is when people act like it has as much clarity as any other Bible subject. I've heard debates where people get up and talk about the covering and the first thing they say is this is as clear as Mark 16, 16. And I think, are you crazy? It is not. And not only that, the very language betrays the fact that they know it's not as clear because they'll say things like, don't you think this is the safest course or something of that sort that they'll use language that they would never use about baptism. And so it shows that they know that they don't have the same level of confidence in this topic as some other topic. Peter says in second Peter chapter three and verse 16, uh, he says regarding Paul, who he calls in verse 15, our beloved brother. He says that Paul wrote some things to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. I'll tell you what, that is a, that is a key concept we need to admit. When somebody comes and they say, what does this mean? We got to be able to say, that's a pretty tough passage. That's a hard passage. I think there's some sections in Romans. I think Romans chapter 5 is one of the most difficult chapters as you're going down through there and trying to figure out every particular of what Paul is saying in those comparisons between Christ and Adam. I think there's some clear things we can say it's not saying, right? I'm sure of that. But to be able to say with absolute confidence, this is what that means, this is what that means, I think we just got to admit, look, Paul wrote some things that are hard to understand. That's what Peter's saying. And the other thing that I think Peter is saying is that false teachers use that difficulty. And they start there very often and they expand out and they use the difficult passages to rip us to shreds on the passages that are not difficult. And we got to be careful not to allow that to happen. That's what people are doing with the covering. They're saying, you people don't agree about this. And because you don't agree about this, you see, you don't really have unity. And, and what else are you not sure about? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. And I think there's some things that we can say about that. There's some, there's some things that we can do to defend against that charge. But let's just start from a place of honesty that says, it's okay to say, this is a hard passage. This is not as easy as this other passage. When we talk about convincing people, when we talk about making our case about any particular Bible topic, that is the sort of language we should use, making our case. We're putting evidence on the table. Now, when it comes to baptism, boy, I can fill the table up. I can fill it up from start to finish. I can fill it up with commands. I can fill it up with one example after another. I can fill it up with details about how quickly they went to be baptized, about going down into the water to be baptized. And it's, and it's a unified message start to finish. And if somebody even says about Mark 16, 16, for instance, well, I'm not sure that's in the original. Keep it. I can still prove baptism. You know, you would have to take away so many passages to take away all that we can say about baptism. That's not the truth about 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, I got a handful of verses here. 
And that's it. That's all I got. I'm going to make my case. I'm going to make it as strong as I can. But I'm going to admit at the end of the day, my case is not as strong about this as it would be about a lot of other doctrinal elements that we hang our hats on. So it's just a matter of some honesty. We don't have to, though, give up the established parts of truth in order to admit that. So somebody says, well, if you say that you can't understand that, then what else can't you understand? If somebody came in and asked you, now we may have some engineers here who could answer this affirmatively. Where I preach in Athens, we got too many engineers to count. So this illustration doesn't always hit home. But somebody came and said, do you understand differential equations? And you said, I'm not even sure what that means. Well, then you can't understand two plus two, can you? Well, you'd say, that's ridiculous. I can understand basic concepts of math, but I haven't gotten my degree. I haven't taken Cal 2, Cal 3, and gotten into all of these other elements of, of mathematics. But I still know 2 plus 2 equals 4. And the same thing's true with God's Word. Somebody comes and says, do you understand this difficult passage? No, I don't. Well, then how can you say you know Jesus is the Son of God? Because it's on every page. That's not hard. How can you say that you know baptism's necessary? Because it literally says baptism now saves you. I mean, it, it, there's no way around the language that it uses for that. As a friend once told me, I, I like the way Tim Sutton put this. We were talking about baptism and he said there was, there was some conflict, uh, still is, uh, of, of people saying they're just not sure about that. And he said, if God wanted to make it clear that we had to be baptized, can you think of any other language he could have used to make that more clear? You know, what, what phrase would you come up with? And I can't think of a phrase that would make that more clear than he already has made it. But I don't think I have that same sort of knowledge, that same sort of foundation when it comes to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But just looking in 1 Corinthians, look back over at chapter 6 and verse 9 beginning. Look at the clarity of this language. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In the world right now, when we say that we are unsure about some aspect of God's word, they'll say, well, then why aren't you unsure about this? Well, because when he says, if you're a homosexual, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's just no way around that. That's clarity, you see. But then if we come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 29, it says otherwise. What, and this is a, a case Paul is making for the resurrection. Otherwise, what will those who are baptized... Um, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? Can I just say to Paul's question, I say, I don't know and I'm not even sure what you're talking about. I don't know what baptism for the dead is. I have some suggestions, some possibilities. Again, like Romans chapter 5, I know what it's not because of everything I can read about baptism. I know, I know for certain it's not some things, some elements like the Mormons would say it's being baptized on behalf of the dead in a way that would bring them salvation. But I can't be certain about what that is. 
Now, here's what I am certain about. So many of the other things that he says about resurrection. I am certain about other proofs of the resurrection. I'm just not certain about this proof of the resurrection. But that has nothing to do with my confidence about 1 Corinthians 6. Homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, along with all of these other elements that are listed who will not uh, inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, he says. So we just need to admit that. We need to admit where there's, where there's clear cut, cut and dried, as we might say, language, and where there's not. We need to admit when there's varying levels of confidence in our minds. Romans chapter 14. I think sometimes it is dangerous to jump straight to the question of, is this an issue of fellowship? And I think that can be problematic. Sometimes we need to find that out. We need to investigate. We don't need to say at the beginning of a conversation whether that's the case or not. But I also think it is helpful to at least contemplate that. To think in terms of whether that's the case. I know a man who goes around debating and advocating for the covering. And as he advocates for that, he uses language that suggests if you, if you don't wear the covering, you are lost. And he is certain about that. Yet his wife does not wear the covering. And he draws no lines of fellowship with regards to that. And so my question is, would you say she is lost? He's not willing to say that. Well, he needs to admit that. And he needs to say, that shows that I don't have the same level of confidence about this as, say, some of those people who are mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In Romans chapter 14 and in verse uh, 15, Romans chapter 14 and there in verse 15, Paul writes, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Now, Paul, I'm not saying the covering is a, first, is a Romans 14 issue, as people like to say. They want to they categorize and be confident. This belongs in Romans 14, this doesn't. I'm not saying necessarily it does, but I, I do see a principle here. And that is that if you are not sure your brother is wrong, then don't go there. If you are not confident, don't condemn somebody that you don't know is already condemned by God. Don't you become the judge. I asked Wes Brown about this. Some of you may know uh, Brother Wes, and we are uh, good friends, and I've looked to him for advice a lot of times, and I asked him about this. What do you think about this? And he and I are pretty close in our understanding of the covering. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with the fact that you don't agree with so many brethren on that? And he said, Stephen, I just don't break fellowship unless I have to. Unless God's word demands I break fellowship. So that's what I ask people. Do you think God's word demands you break fellowship? And there's some issues where I can say, yeah, I know it demands that I break fellowship. But I'm honest enough to admit, and I think we all need to be honest enough to admit, that when it comes to 1 Corinthians 11, I'm going to have to say, no, no, I can't go there. Well, then my language needs to reflect that. I need to talk about it in that way. So here I am, somebody that believes the covering ought to be worn. There, I'm showing my cards a little bit. I believe the covering ought to be worn in assemblies uh, during worship. And so I, I, I reveal that. But I, I say that from this standpoint. I make my case. And somebody says, well, you think if I don't, I'm going to hell. No, I, I, not only did I not say that, 
but I will say openly, I do not believe I can have any confidence about that. So I make my case saying, here's what I, here's what I feel sure about. And then here's what I am not so sure about. And here's what I'm even less sure about. And just be very honest and open about all of that. We need to have the appreciation that every subject isn't cut and dry. In 1 Corinthians, going back there again, and so much in this book, Paul is, is requiring judgment on the part of the people receiving this book. One of the things that he requires some judgment on is the eating of meats that are offered to idols. He starts out that conversation in chapter 8 saying, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. He says uh, there in verse 4, Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know or have knowledge that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. All right, so he starts out saying, I, I realize and you realize, or at least many of you realize, that, that an idol is not a real thing, that it's just a, a, a rock or a piece of wood. And yet, as he goes on through the text, he kind of gives multiple sides. One of them is the consideration of a brother, but also there is this over in chapter 10 and beginning in verse 18, he says, look at the nation uh, Israel. Are not those who eat sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he are we? So on the one hand, Paul makes the argument, says, I know, like there's nothing really magical happening to that meat. On the other hand, he says, look, other people have been pulled away by getting too close to this. So I can just imagine, I can just imagine in that first century church, people saying, is it okay to eat this meat? And Paul says, well, here's something to consider. All right. The idol doesn't really mean anything. Before you go condemning your brother, recognize the idol doesn't mean anything. But then the guy who's chomping at the bit to go eat says, now, understand, you're not the first one to want to get too close. And look what happened to Israel. They were drawn away. And then he goes on, and there's some more back and forth. It's like, okay, but what if you don't know? All right, then eat. And don't even ask any questions about it. Now, there's not a whole lot of subjects where, where God's word says ignorance excuses you. But Paul seems to say that here. And he even says, like, arduously maintain your ignorance, right? Ask no questions for conscience sake. Go ahead. But then if somebody like puts it in front of you and says, eat it just to see what you'll do, then you back off for their sake and for yours. So I see him going back and forth and just offering arguments on, on both sides. And I think on one side, it's to the brother who's looking at another brother who's eating that meat. Don't you judge him too harshly. And then on the other side, uh, it's the towards the, the brother who wants to eat the meat, he's saying, you need to consider these problems with eating the meat. And somebody might say, but then what's the answer? You're going to have to decide. You're going to have to make a judgment and a choice. And it sounds like what he doesn't want is these brethren going around and making rules for one another. 
on that particular subject and, and saying, nope, I've decided this is when you've crossed the line. I've decided that you can't eat this meat for these reasons. And so Paul lays out principles by which they should live and then leaves room for people to make judgments based on those principles. I don't mean that that's the way every subject in God's Word is, but it is the way some subjects in God's Word are. I think, too, about that honesty, that we can concede some things without conceding everything. We can concede that we don't know certain things, or we can concede that at least this point is true. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as that conversation about circumcision is happening, you, you may recall at the end of that conversation that James says, in my judgment, which is an interesting way to put things, it is my judgment that we shouldn't compel Gentiles to do this, to be circumcised, but we should write them a letter to say, stay away from these things. And so what James is doing is conceding that, yes, there needs to be some clarity about what Gentiles are beholden to and what they aren't. But that doesn't mean they need to go be circumcised. And so it's like he's, he's giving a little bit, but not giving up the whole game there, as it were. And so I think that's another thing. Sometimes we want to hold on to every aspect of what we believe. Sometimes we, we may say, okay, I think you've shown my argument is weak in this area. That doesn't blow away everything I believe, but you, you may have made a crack over here. And so that needs to be uh, considered as we have conversations about those kinds of things. Um, going back to making a case, here's another thing that I think we need to be able to do. I think we need to be able to make a case and, and then understand or have some room for people to disagree when we understand that we don't have a definitive, clear-cut way of saying this is what's right and this is what's wrong. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 makes a case to the Corinthians about marriage. He says, first of all, in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Now let's just, let's just use some of our uh, debate skills right here. If I were to stand up and try to make the case Paul was making, or maybe like I'm in Corinth and I'm trying to convince people not to get married, I might, I might go like this. I might say, well, if Paul says it's good to not be married, then it must be bad to be married, right? And so I, I start making the logical case and I, I start, and of course, then it comes, I run into a problem because over in Genesis, God says it's not good for man to be alone. So now I've got to reconcile that a little bit. But most of the time, we don't do that. We pick out the passage we want to hang our hat on. We say, right here, what does Paul say about marriage? He says, it's better to not be. He goes on, and in verse 9, he makes this case. And this is, this is uh, an interesting passage. If they do not have self-control, then let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Somebody says, well, I want to get married. What do you lack self-control? So what a position to put yourself in. Yes, I lack self-control. All right. So you're a reprobate. Then go get married. I don't, I don't really think that's what, what Paul's saying. But I mean, I think at what some level what he's saying is if you recognize that you're going to fall into sin by holding to what I'm saying, well, it's better to go do that. You know, it's, 
marriage is not great for the people in Corinth at this moment. But marriage is better than burning for a lack of control. And so he puts all of that out there. But can you imagine making that argument? You know, I might, I might make an argument about the covering or let's take it to something else. I'm an advocate of homeschooling. I appreciate homeschooling, but I recognize that is not the authoritative word of God. I think there's wisdom in it. And I would make my case. And I might say something that people might not like about that. And I say, look, you want to send your children to be educated by the world who increasingly disbelieves everything you hold dear, go right ahead. And somebody might say, how dare you? Look, I'm, I'm just making a case. I'm going to make a strong case. But at the end of the day, I'm going to recognize this. I'm going to say what Paul says. If you marry, you have not sinned. He goes on to say, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And I think that we need to leave that door open there. I might, I might say this about the covering. What I would say is, I don't know that you've sinned, right? I, I don't have confidence that you've sinned. I can't say with confidence you haven't. And I think people wish I could. You know, they wish I could just say, you haven't sinned. Well, I can't say that either. But I'm leaving that door open because I'm not the one that's going to close it. But you need to have confidence in your mind. And that's the other element of this. Paul lays out those principles. And one of the things that he says in, in Romans chapter 14 is what you do, do with faith, do with confidence. You need to believe and have confidence that what you're doing is the right thing. And if you, if you felt shaky about what you're doing, then you need to look into that more deeply. You need to get to a place where you are confident about what you're doing and how you're worshiping God and your relationship with God. And you need to keep working until you get there. I'm afraid too many people wear the covering because that's what they grew up with. And too many people don't wear the covering because that's what they grew up with. And that's no good either way. People need to know what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they need to believe and have confidence in what they're doing. And that's what Paul is saying all through 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you can eat meat, fine. If you can't eat meat, fine. But know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then also have respect for your brother over there. So back over to Romans chapter 14 then. Romans chapter 14. And here is, I think, a very difficult principle to apply. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. A particular part of that verse I think we need to focus on is that, that word contempt. It is becoming increasingly difficult in our society to have a conversation in which two parties disagree where there is not contempt. Everybody's got a hot take. Everybody's got to just burn the other guy to the ground. Got a, a withering reply. Oh, I just, I just owned him. What are you? That's a brother in Christ you're talking about. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not looking to own anybody. I'm not looking to destroy somebody. I want to come together. And so I, I think 
the idea here is that even if you can't come to terms, there's some issues where you got to look at that brother and say, I still respect that brother. So sometimes on the covering, I hear back and forth. I hear people who wear the covering will say about people who don't. Most people just don't respect authority. That's not true. I know those brethren. And I know how much they care about authority. And I've had those conversations with so many of my beloved brethren who don't wear the covering. And the arguments they make are arguments I cannot entirely tear down. I don't think they've torn my arguments down. But they've got a perspective that I can't, I can't just rip it to shreds and say, you know, you're being foolish about this. I just say, okay. But I, I still... I still am hanging my hat on this and I can't, I can't, you're not getting me away from this particular aspect. And so there needs to be that respect that says, I get it. I appreciate where you're coming from. And then conversely, I hear people who don't wear the cover and say, those people, they'll say something like, uh, those people wear those doilies. Well, you know that's not true. You know that's not what that is. It's not a silly little thing that they're doing over there. They got a conviction. And we want to respect conviction. I had a, a friend, a brother, who didn't celebrate Christmas in any way. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't care. I care about you, but I don't care what you do about that. But this brother came up to me after I had preached a lesson on Christmas. And basically in the lesson on Christmas, I, I was saying, I, I don't care. I'm not an, a Christmas enthusiast. I just don't want us to get pulled into what the world does with that. And that was the, the lesson. Well, anyway, he came up to me and, and he was adamant about not celebrating Christmas. And he said, I want you to know that as much as you're against Chris, or for Christmas, I'm that much against it. I was like, so you're ambivalent? I mean, <laughs> I'm not crazy for it. But no, he, he thought I was crazy for it. And I said, well, all right. I said, well, I'd be... More than happy to hear what you have to say about that. And he said, I'll tell you what happened uh, to me is there was a brother down the road that had decorations in his yard and he, he didn't celebrate it religiously. He only celebrated it secularly. And so he had those decorations in his yard. And I had a Catholic neighbor that came up to me and said, what about that guy you go to church with celebrating Christmas? How can he justify that? And I told him, I have no idea. You'll have to ask him. And I said, brother, I said, now, is that true? Do you really have no idea how he justifies that? He said, well, I mean, he says that it's a secular holiday. I said, then why didn't you make that case to that Catholic guy for your brother over there and let that guy know that, that your brother over there it does have good sense. That's why you still worship with him and you have fellowship with him and not act like it, he's just being absurd and completely a hypocrite. All right, five minutes. Well, I, I think we got to have that attitude that says, I want to I defend my brethren whenever I can. And that's the point. Don't have contempt for the views of your brethren. All right, five minutes. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11. That worked out just right. <laughs> Over in 1 Corinthians 11. I come to this passage. I find in this passage a principle. The principle is that of headship. It is the order of headship involving God, Christ, man, and woman. Now, 
Does anybody in here believe that woman is head of man? Any hands? Nobody believes that. So let me just start out by saying here it is. We all agree on the principle. Whatever the application is, we all agree on the principle Paul is teaching, don't we? We need to start there. We need to start by coming together there and saying we are all on the same page about authority. And we're all on the same page about the principle that is being taught by the covering. Can I bring in a, a similar situation? You know, the holy kiss. I don't believe that the covering is cultural. And I do believe that the holy kiss is cultural. Some people think I'm inconsistent with that. I think I could make a case that I'm not. We won't have all that conversation right now. Nevertheless, when it comes to the holy kiss... I don't believe that specifically applies to us. But I tell you what I think does apply to us is that when we see each other, we ought to greet each other warmly and show each other that we love each other. That's what you see in the context, especially of like Romans chapter 12, is that there ought to be a, a warmth among brethren and it ought to be demonstrable, that warmth among brethren. And so here, same thing. Whatever you think about the application, whatever you think about the covering, this principle doesn't go away. That the covering illustrated a greater principle, which is the headship and the authority going on there. And particularly, I think that the authority is when we're coming before God, that, that we're illustrating that. And I think in the context here, we're talking about in the assembly. I might point to one other place to suggest that it's in the assembly. In verse 16, it says in, in the New American Standard, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. I think in order to have a, a church practice, now, you can question me on this later. We don't have time to go into it right now. But in order for the church to practice something, the church has to be assembled. Now, understand, I, I understand the difficulty of that. Somebody might say, well, withdrawal ought to be practiced outside the assembly or something like that, fellowship or something like that. But even in that aspect, the church has to come together in order to do that. But, but a way to illustrate that's over in chapter 14, when Paul says about the women that they ought to keep silent. Um, it says uh, they should not speak in the church. Well, of course, we understand that that has to be in the assembly. Otherwise, women can't speak anywhere. Some people might be an advocate of that, but I am not. And so, so that's particularly what he's talking about. And I think as we go back to chapter 11, we're still in the context of that. And the church is having this practice or not having this practice uh, um, or having no other practice, as the New American Standard would put it, rather. It means to me that, that that's isolating it into the assembly. And so I think that 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 authority is to be had in the assembly particularly, or it's particularly to be symbolized within the assembly. Now, again, I think we're all on the same page about that authority particularly needing to be shown in the assembly. I think we're all on the same page about women being silent. Now, not all of our brethren are, and that's getting more and more worrisome. But I think everybody in this room probably would be on the same page about that. Let the women keep silent in the church. And so here is a demonstrable way to show that. Well, I think those are two principles we can agree on. From there, here comes the question. Is this like the holy kiss? Is it something that is cultural? The other question is, 
is there something in the language that suggests that the hair is the covering? I don't think it does. I can't, I can't get my head around the hair being the covering. And I can't definitively say it's cultural. So let me just wrap this up real quick. I start from this premise. I start with, all right, Paul says wear covering for this reason. This reason is one we agree on. I go to the next premise. If it's not to be worn today, I need to be able to prove that to a point that I can have confidence, my wife can have confidence, and we can act with confidence that we are worshiping God like we ought to. And then uh, the, the third question comes to that, that uh, point of the hair or whatever argument you might bring to the table. Basically, you've got to give me enough confidence that I don't take these words literally. Some people have that confidence. I don't, and my wife doesn't. One more thing, and then we'll be done, and that is this. There are some issues where the clarity of Scripture says, you know, you have to withdraw. Sexual immorality, the things mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, there's just, there's just no way to maintain fellowship. We already talked about that. There are some things where I may not be as sure as that, but we can't worship together if you believe differently than me on this, right? So if you believe, I do have confidence in instrumental music, but if you believe that instruments can be used in public worship, I don't. That means we can't worship together if you demand that we use those. If you think money should be spent in a certain way, we can't worship together if you insist on spending the money that way and I insist that it can't be done. But you can wear a covering and me not. Or my wife can wear one and you not. And we can still worship in the same building. And you can make that judgment and she can make that judgment. And it doesn't demand a separation of fellowship. And so I think that's another element that we have to consider in all that. I think there's other things that could be said. I'd be happy to have an actual conversation about this. But I think until those attitudes are in place, a lot of times that's just button heads. And so I think we got to set those attitudes in place to be able to have a profitable conversation about that. I appreciate your good attention.